The stones will cry out. You ever heard stones cry out? They don't. But they would if people don't give God praise. Palm Sunday is all about singing Hosanna, praising God. As you turn to Matthew 21, where we're going to be reading from, I don't know how many of you can see this little sticker I've got here. These stickers are available. There are a few people that already have them, but these are going to be available when you leave. And on this sticker is a QR code. That QR code will take you to a three and a half minute video that is, I'm not sure you're going to be able to breathe after you listen to this video. It's the video, He's My King. And the the narrator and the graphics that go with it are just wonderful. So maybe over lunch, don't do it while you're driving because you've got to be watching the screen. But it's just a wonderful video talking about he is my king. Okay, Matthew 21, commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. On November 28th, 1965, the fighter plane of Howard Rutledge exploded under enemy fire. He parachuted into the hands of the North Vietnamese Army and was promptly placed in the Heartbreak Hotel, one of the prisons in Hanoi. Howard writes, When the door slammed and the key turned in that rusty iron lock, a feeling of utter loneliness swept over me. I lay down in that cold cement slab in my six-by-six prison, The smell burned my nostrils. A rat, large as a small cat, scampered across the floor beside me. Bars bars covered a tiny window high above the door. I was cold and hungry, 
My body ached from the swollen joints and sprained muscles. It's hard to describe what solitary confinement can do to unnerve and defeat a man. You quickly tire of standing up or sitting down, sleeping or being awake. No books, no paper, no pencils, no magazines, no newspapers, nothing. The only colors you see are drab, gray, and dirty brown. You're locked in, trying to keep your sanity. He continues, I could remember I had children, but not how many. I said my wife's name over and over again so I wouldn't forget it. During those long periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. I wanted to know about the part of me that will never die. I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. It took prison to show me how empty my life is without God. What gets your attention? (laughs) What causes you to lay aside the urgent and focus on the important? Relationships, maybe broken relationships, death of a loved one, illness, just looking around at the broken world and wondering, how do I survive? How do I get through this? A lost job. There's a king. (laughs) Today we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if we look at verse 5 here in Matthew 21, we see Jesus using the prophecy from Zechariah, written centuries before he came. We see Jesus using that as saying, your king is coming. And Jesus says, I am that king. It doesn't seem like, you know, a king is coming. We call this the triumphal entry. We know how this week plays out. We know this is, on this day, the triumphal entry takes place. On Thursday, he's betrayed. On Friday, Thursday night and Friday morning, there's a, there are all kinds of trials going on. He's condemned. He's crucified on Friday. He rises a week from today. So in calling this the triumphal entry, it, it's only because we're looking back and we see how it plays out. This, the triumphantness of this entry certainly in retrospect it is a triumphal entry because now Jesus is no longer hiding in the background he's no longer telling his disciples don't tell people who I am he's open in terms of displaying his gifts and his powers and in saying who he is but in in some ways it's shadowy because he's calling people, many times when he says a parable, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He does that because he wants people to think. He wants people to understand who he is. But he wants them to arrive at that conclusion on their own. So in a sense, it, it, his, his being on earth has kind of been shadowy and hidden. But at the triumphal entry, 
I'm here. Jesus says, I am your king. It was prophesied about me. The past is now the present. Jesus says, your king is coming and your king is here. Openly. Declaring who he is. And the people respond by praise. Hosanna, our savior. He's here. He's come. All the prophecies are now embodied in this one walking on a donkey into Jerusalem. (laughs) Can it be? Yes. Now, we don't know how pure the motives were of these people that were praising this Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, this son of David. I find it really interesting that if you look at the, just before at the end of chapter 20 in Matthew, what happens? You've got two blind men. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And these two blind men call out, Son of David, have mercy on us. That is not a common thing to call Jesus. But these two guys understand that their blindness, they can't see. But they can see. (laughs) They can see Son of David. They know who Jesus is. And they... Come to Jesus. They have to fight to get there because the crowd doesn't want to be interrupted. But they go to Jesus. Jesus says, "What? why are you here? And we want our sight. All of a sudden they can see. But they first had to see with their spiritual eyes, which they did. And they join this procession into Jerusalem. They join these people as Jesus walks on the donkey into Jerusalem. I think there were at least two there. When they said Hosanna, they said praise to the son of David. There were two guys. (laughs) They knew. They knew who Jesus was. They'd experienced it. So now is it not only open who Jesus is, he's opened the doors on who he is. He's declaring his kingship, not just over individuals, but over everyone. He's open about his declaration, but he's also being very personal here. You look at who's involved. You got Jesus, you got the disciples, you got the donkey owner, you got the donkeys, you got the crowd. Isn't it amazing? You look at this prophecy, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. Jesus gives his own prophecy about how this is going to be fulfilled. He tells his disciples, hey, Go to this village, you're going to find a donkey. And if they ask you, here's what you need to tell them. It's like a double-decker prophecy. (laughs) And it comes true. Not only the original one, but what Jesus layers on top of it. These people are seeing not only openly, but individually and personally who Jesus is. That, that time going into that ride into Jerusalem, so to speak, was probably less than an hour. You've got a lot of people involved, a lot of expectations. We, we go to, uh, go back a few, few chapters here. Chapter 20, actually. Chapter 20, verse 17 in Matthew. It says, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, 
We are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And yet Jesus rides in declaring, I'm the king. Your king has come. But yet he tells the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. He's setting a time. He's setting a place. He's saying, this is going to happen. Your king is not only coming, but your king is a servant. And your servant is going to pay a price. Your king is coming. Your servant king is coming. Pretend you're one of the ones on the road during this triumphal entry. You're you're calling out Hosanna. You have decided that you're going to stay in that road the rest of your life. You're looking to Jesus. You're seeing him as your king. And you're committed to him. I don't think everybody on the road was saying this is really good. I think there were some that were hanging back. I think there were some that were saying, he's not my king. Fair enough. Maybe there's some here who are saying, he's not my king. I can relate to that. I hear you. I used to say Jesus was not my king. But I realized as I, this would have been in my my teenage years, And I'd heard the gospel. I heard the truth. But I I was thinking in my own mind, I I knew some Christians that they were not good examples. I was not really aware of who Jesus was or his claims, but I had dismissed him because of what I heard or I'd seen actions of what what other Christians had done. They'd be judgmental. They'd they just, some of them were just not fun to be around. Can you relate to me? (laughs) Don't dismiss Jesus because of a bad example of one of his followers. There was once a, a group of lawyers. One of them was a believer and the others were not. And the, those that didn't believe, those that didn't call Christ their king, didn't really make fun of the believing lawyer, he was a good lawyer, so they, they tolerated him. But one day, on the front page was displayed the headlines of a high-profile Christian leader who had had a moral failure. And these, these lawyers wanted to kind of poke at the one lawyer who was calling Jesus his king. And they, they got the newspaper, and they simply walked into his office and set it down on his desk. And he, the believer looked at the headlines. He said, boy, that's really sad. I, I, I'm not going to defend this guy. He did wrong. But then he handed the newspaper back and he said, don't judge Jesus by one of his followers who's not doing a very good job. That's what I came to understand. I was dismissing Jesus as my king but I didn't have a good picture of who he was. So I, I say all that to say this. 
If you are saying in, or thinking in your mind, Jesus is not my king, time out. Put aside how you've been offended and look at the evidence. We're in the book of Matthew here. So read the book of Matthew. Matthew was an eyewitness. He was with Jesus many years. Matthew dutifully recorded what Jesus said, what he did, how he did it, how he treated people, what his claims were. In a sense, be a good lawyer. Read the evidence. Read the manuscript. Read the eyewitness account. Let that be the basis for how you see Jesus. Jesus claims to be king. He is king. Many of us here look to him as our king. We we don't hold back in saying praise to God for our savior. Hosanna to the one who comes. So Jesus has fulfilled prophecy. The past, in a sense, has been brought up to the now. I heard somebody define prophecy as history before it happens. I like that. The prophecy has been fulfilled. It's now history. It's happened. Jesus has come openly. He's made claims. He's come personally. This isn't what y'all want to do. This, what are you as an individual? What is your decision on who Jesus is? Once you claim Jesus as your king, then it's no longer your king is coming. Your king is here. Your king is now. Your king is in walking beside you as you live the Christian life. Your king is coming. Your king is here. He's with you. He's present. I I plead with you. Serve your king. Walk with your king. Don't let the misbehavior of other people as a believer. Don't don't look to bad examples to dismiss your desire. To follow your king. Jesus is your king. He is the one who has conquered death. Who has reconciled you to the father. Who dwells in you. Walk. As Jesus walked. I, I don't see that as an obligation. That, that's not the deal. Jesus doesn't. Give us a list of rules and say, measure up, dude. He says, this, this is a relationship. I'm here to walk beside you, with you, as you live a Christian life. Yes, there's a standard. But the relationship drives the standard. We are called to live as though Jesus is our king. Rightly so. But we're not left on our own. We're not orphans. We've been brought into the family of God. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're his. How how often are you needy? (laughs) I ask myself that and I say all the time. (laughs) The Christian life is impossible 
without depending on the power of the Holy Spirit and walking in fellowship with our Savior. We are, we are subjects of the king. We have a king as our master. We have a king that has all power, all authority. And he's calling us to live for him. He declared it openly in the triumphal entry. He calls us to live for him. So Jesus' kingship is now, it's active, but it's also ongoing. As I've said, we we need to walk as Jesus walked. I, I like how Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says this. And there's actually somebody in the parking lot today has a license plate that says Colossians 2, 6 and 7. And her name is Beth. So you might want to guess who that might be. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. So then... Just as you received Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So our receiving is the basis for how we should live. But we're, our dependence on living for our king is dependent on that decision of following him and declaring him as our king. But it's also a dependence, an ongoing dependence on what he has called us to be and how to live and what to do and what to say and what not to say. All of our behaviors. The story of the triumphal entry is one of contrasts. It's the story of the king who came as a lowly servant on a donkey, not a prancing steed, not in royal robes, but on the clothes of the poor and humble. Jesus Christ comes not to conquer by force as earthly kings, but by love, grace, mercy, and his own sacrifice for his people. His is not a kingdom of armies, and splendor, but of lowliness and servanthood. He conquers not nations, but hearts and minds. His message is one of peace with God, not of temporal peace, eternal peace. If Jesus has made a triumphal entry into your heart, he reigns there in peace and love. I need to give a shout out to doctors. Just hang with me here. Doctors, how many of you had to wait in a waiting room? You ever gone to the doctor and had to be in a waiting room? <laughs> I can see that hand, Bob. <laughs> in a waiting room, okay, you don't, you don't look around at the other patients and say, well, you know, I've waited too long. I'm going to let them do the surgery or I'm going to let them decide what prescription I need. No, the waiting room is called that. Because that's the waiting room. In a sense, that represents where we are right now as believers. We have called Christ as our king. He has come the first time. 
We've got entry into the waiting room, so to speak. But we know the real solution to our fundamental problem is only going to happen when our king comes again. Okay, this is a stretch. Okay, hang with me here. We're living in a waiting room as believers between the between our claiming Christ as king and his coming back again or our going to be with him. We're kind of in a waiting room. We know there's good coming. We know there's better coming. We know the solution is going to be applied. But we're with other sick people, so to speak. We're with other Christians. We're as a group. We know better's coming, but yet we know we got problems now. But we see those problems in perspective because we know the great physician is coming back again and all of our sickness and sorrow and sign will flee away. Paul Tripp writes of the concept of eternity amnesia. I like that. Don't ever get caught in the waiting room with eternity amnesia. You got to keep your perspective. Jesus came, came as a servant. He secured salvation for those who look to him and call him his king, call him their own king. That sets our life on a different course than what it was before. It also sets our eyes, as Paul talks about in Colossians 3, it sets our eyes on heaven. We're still on earth. We're still in the waiting room. But we know the best is yet to come. Don't, and I'm talking to myself here, don't suffer from eternity amnesia. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to minimize your problem, but see those problems in light of the fact that Christ is going to make all things right. Amen? That's our hope. This, this life will flee away. We minister as we can. In this broken world, we're called to be good servants of our king. In light of the fact that he's coming back again. A few chapters later in Matthew 25... It's really amazing to me that Jesus, well, let me just read this passage. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right And the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right. Come. You who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you. Since the creation of the world. Jesus starts out talking about. Son of man. But then he switches and says. The king. The king. Don't miss that. 
Jesus is the king. Revelation 19 talks about on his robe and on his thigh is written, the king of kings, Lord of lords. There is no authority above Jesus. He is king. We need to live like that. But we also need to understand that those around us, if they're not calling Jesus their king, we delight in the fact that he's coming back again, but it's a warning too. It's a warning that we need to speak to those who do not call Jesus king. Not in a proud way of being judgmental, but in a pleading way of saying, this is the way. Jesus is king. He's winsome. He's a servant. He sacrificed. He took the initiative to solve a problem that we didn't even know we had. He is the king. Verse 10, back in our passage in Matthew 21, they come in. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. A lot of the people are aware of what's going on. Many are not. And some of them ask in verse 10, who is this? What is going on? That's a great question. Who is this? We need to answer with he is the king. He is the king. Vice President George Bush was speaking at a prayer breakfast and told of his trip to Russia to represent the U.S. at the funeral of Leonid, I think get that right, Leonid Brezhnev. The funeral was as precise and stoic as the communist regime. No tears were seen, no emotion displayed, with one exception. Mr. Bush told how Brezhnev's widow was the last person to witness the body before the coffin was closed. For several seconds, she just stood there at his side. Then she reached down and performed the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. In the hour of her husband's death, she went not to Lenin, not to Marx, not to Khrushchev. In the hour of her husband's death, she turned to a Nazarene carpenter who had lived 2,000 years ago and rode into Jerusalem declaring, I am your king. Amen. Lord, as we consider your claim, as we look to walk as you walk, to worship you, to love you, to realize you walk with us and by us and for us. Lord Jesus, cause us to shut our eyes to the world and look to you, to be blind to what should not be seen. May we see with our spiritual eyes truly who you are. May we walk with you as our king. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.